you probably didn't catch it, uh, but as I was passing Marilyn coming down the stairs, she looked at me and said, well, good luck with that. <laughs> um, indeed, Marilyn, thank you for reading. Church, what a joy to sing with you uh, this morning. I think that hopefully by the time we leave today, looking at our passage today, uh, you will come to treasure and be grateful for uh, the saints singing with you today. I saw a post on Facebook recently from a friend that I went to high school with. He was a year older than me. His younger brother was one of my, my best friends. His name's Joseph. Joseph uh, has been flying in the Navy for several decades now, uh, all, all kinds of different planes from fighter to carriers, and I don't even know what names of planes there are. And he, he posted, he says, you, you know that you've been flying for a long time uh, in the Navy or in the military when you come home and you tell your wife about a near-death experience in the plane today. You saved yourself and the crew from an emergency situation where you are about to crash. You pulled it out. You landed the plane. And your wife simply says, good job, babe. Did you get the toilet paper on the way home? <laughs> you know you've been doing it for a while, and that's the response. I thought about that, and I thought, isn't that parallel to the Christian's experience to opposition in the world? It's not special. It's not an event that may occur one day in the world. It is not a relationship with the world that we are simply Awaiting may happen one day, but the Christian's experience from the very first Christians who followed Jesus Christ in person, in flesh and blood, until today, and increasingly we think until the very end when Jesus returns again, it will not be uncommon for Christians to come home and say, babe, let me tell you about today. Uh, my job is on the line because I've been outspoken about my faith. I got moved to a different job. I was told to be quiet. Things are going to be different now, or I lost my job. I can't go back to my family. My relationship with my family will never be the same because I chose to share the gospel at Thanksgiving, so Thanksgiving will never be the same for us. As Christians, we hear those stories and those testimonies, and they are familiar enough to us that we say, well, good job. What's tomorrow? What's next? Revelation is one long letter from our Lord Jesus Christ to the church, the suffering church, the church that is experiencing opposition over and over and over again. We've been going through Revelation for some time. We've taken a break for a few weeks. I feel rusty about Revelation uh, after taking a little rest. We come to this passage which has one of the most well-known ideas or concepts in the Bible today, the mark of the beast. We see two beasts in Revelation chapter 13, and then we see some encouragement in the first few verses in chapter 14. And I want to say up front, what we're really going to see is this is showing us two different ways Christians are going to experience opposition. The first one in the first beast is power. 
power. The second opposition that Christians can expect and do experience is deception. Power in the first beast, deception by the second beast. This is the norm for Christians in the world who follow Jesus Christ to experience opposition by satanic power and satanic deception in the world. How do we respond? What could be our hope? What could make us, help us endure? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us today, that you would help us as we hear your word to hear it for what it is, not the word of man, but the word of God, which is at work in those who believe. And I pray, Father, that it would be your word that works here today, that it would be the the power of the Spirit, no man's voice, not even our own voices, but the power of the Holy Spirit, which makes these words live and can make men's hearts live and be awakened to the truthfulness of Jesus Christ and also be awakened to courage and endurance and faith in Jesus Christ. Father, you know what we need today. We know what we need from this moment, from this word, from this text. We pray that you would help us by your spirit and through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wrestled this week with whether or not we should even preach Revelation. So many things going on in the world, so many things going on in the church. You know, at, at our church here, our typical diet is to preach through books of the Bible. I don't ask too many questions. What am I going to preach? I can tell you what I'm going to preach. And, you know, four or five weeks from now, if you just look at the Revelation uh, breakdown, uh, Charles Spurgeon didn't do it that way. Charles Spurgeon prayed every single week, Lord, what do you want me to say? And then he did not preach a sermon until he felt like he had that. But I thought, you know, our church just needs some encouragement. Our, our church maybe just need to be lifted up. We need, just may need to have our spirits lifted. I'm not sure that all this technical work through the beast and through the mark of the beast is really what we, what we need right now. And I'll just tell you, saints, as I worked through Revelation 13, I'm just reminded how encouraging this is, how inspiring this is, what we see in Revelation 13, beginning of 14. Let's kind of get our bearings straight in the book of Revelation for just a moment. Remember, we were in chapter 12 way back on October the 17th, several weeks ago. In Revelation chapter 12, we saw John see kind of the behind-the-scenes version of history, looking around the birth of Christ and the life of Christ. We, we see that it wasn't just uh, Herod, it wasn't just Jesus and Mary, that there was a dragon who was pursuing the woman, a dragon who was pursuing Christ. That That dragon ended up getting into a war in heaven with the angels who defeated him. He was cast down to the earth where he pursued the woman. And then eventually that dragon set his sights on the saints. On the saints. You can go back to chapter 12, verse 17. The dragon became furious with the woman who found a way to escape and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. The dragon set to make war against those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
that he is God's son, that he was crucified for our sins, that he is the Messiah, that he has, in fact, risen from the grave. But I want you to see that these two beasts that we're going to see in Revelation 13 are related to the dragon. Chapter 13, verse 4, just look there. They, those who were given in to the worship, worshipped the dragon, for he, the dragon, had given his authority to the beast. He had given his authority to the beast, speaking about that first beast. So part of the aim of this message in John's vision is to show the reality in the world behind the reality that we see with our eyes. The opposition that we experience in earthly, physical, flesh, costly terms has an invisible historical reality behind the realm that we cannot see with our eyes. And that ancient dragon, the serpent, the devil, as he is referred to in chapter 12, now seems to have two beasts on the earth, two ministers, if you will, who are doing the dragon's bidding in the war against those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So make sure that we get this connection. This is not only spiritual revelation about unseen events in heaven or unseen realities. There is a chain of events down to you and to me and all who hold testimony of Jesus here on the earth. The dragon has been thrown down. He's given his authority to beasts. And we are going to see that these two beasts have very real consequences on Christians who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we're seeing this chain, this link between the spiritual realm and our world. So that the opposition that we experience should be interpreted with a knowledge that goes beyond what we see with our eyes and what we experience with our flesh. Let's think for a moment about the ministry, if you will, of these two beasts. Who they are and what they are doing. Beast number one. You can see beginning in number one. That written on the beast's head is blasphemous names. This identifies what the beast is like. He's blasphemous against God. He claims to be God, claims to have God's power. He opposes God outright, directly. Look in chapter 13, verse 1 and 2 as well. You see that this first beast has a throne and is given great authority. Chapter 11, verse 6, this beast speaks blasphemous words. Chapter 13, verse 7, part A, this beast makes war on the saints and even conquers them. He actually conquers the saints. To summarize the first beast, he is blasphemous and he kills Christians blasphemous and kills Christians. This beast loves talking about and exerting his power over Christians. This has been a major way that Satan has opposed the people of God from the beginning of the Bible to overpower them 
to try to take God's position and kill the enemy, that is, God's people, try to wipe them out. When Israel went into the land, when they were in Egypt, they faced, on the way to Egypt, they faced military might, Pharaoh's power, the Canaanites' power, and the question was always, who's most powerful, Yahweh or the gods of the other nations? Not unlike so many rulers through history, the beast claims himself to have God's power, to be God, to deserve all God's worship, and kills all who oppose him. That is one scheme of Satan, having been thrown down to earth, exercised through this first beast, oppose Christians, demand their worship, kill them if they refuse. It's a blasphemous exercise and power against Christians. This is one way the dragon is waging war on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Try to overpower them. The second beast is different. Look in Revelation chapter 13. Look at verses 13 through 15. It performs signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. Deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. The second beast seems to have the kind of power that reminds us of God's power in the Old and New Testament, the power to rain fire down from heaven like Elijah, the power to rise from the dead like Jesus, to die and come back from a mortal wound. This first beast having appeared to come back from the dead. But this first beast is a bit different from, the second beast is a bit different from the first in that it does not show itself outright blasphemous. It doesn't act the same way. It doesn't wave the blasphemy flag or speak the blasphemous words necessarily. It does signs. It does signs and its signs, John says, are meant to deceive those who dwell on the earth. So the first beast, to way oversimplify here, the first beast is rolling through downtown in a tank saying, worship me or die. The second beast is running around kissing babies running for office saying, I'm your favorite, vote for me. It's a deception. I'm tricking you into thinking I'm actually who you want to worship, who you want to trust and then we have the mark of the beast, this second beast, Revelation chapter 13. Look again at verse 16 and 17. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the name of its, or the number of its name. So, so here's the mark, the mark of the beast. And let me, let me just say up front, I don't think anyone is going to accidentally get the mark of the beast. There is a very real fear and a very real, real view out there that is floating around that we could accidentally get the mark of the beast. You could go in to get your vaccine, but you're going to come out with a government chip 
and now you have the mark. This is real. I've seen emails, I've seen articles. I got an email from another, another pastor out of state who said he watched a doctor send an email into the military, a military doctor say, I am not going to take the vaccine. I will step away from my job, step away from the promotion I was about to get because I believe the vaccine is the mark of the beast and I'm not gonna take it. I don't want my family to be damned if we take it. I don't think this is primarily what Revelation chapter 13 is talking about. The mechanism for deception of the beast, his mechanism to deceive is not the mark itself. The mechanism to deceive is the signs that mimic God's power and Christ's power. That's the mechanism. By signs, he sought to deceive. The mark is what you receive once you have given in to worship. I'm not even convinced the mark is necessarily a physical thing. Now, it could be. could be, depending on how this works out. But the most important thing in this passage is not that we should all be scared. The government's about to microchip us or put a barcode on our foreheads. But that we are going to be invited to worship someone besides the Lord Jesus Christ with our life and with our money and with our allegiance and with our children and with our home and with our food and told, if you do not bow down, if you do not capitulate, you will be slain or you will go without food. Because if you don't have the mark, what does it say? You can't buy can't sell, you can't trade, you can't buy food, you can't exist in this economy. You won't live. We won't let you do that. His goal is to get us to disbelieve in Jesus, trust in the beast or the dragon, believe that true Christianity, true religion is found in this beast and his signs and his power, that his calling down fire, that his magical reappearance after death would cause us to believe and worship him instead. So the first and second beasts, to summarize, this is what the Christians are going to face. When the dragon has come and when he continues and comes to make war on the saints, the devil, Satan, the ancient serpent, his two beasts, his ministers, will come uttering blasphemous words, and exuding great power to overcome the saints. And the second beast will come doing signs, seeking to deceive the saints, both demanding worship, slaying those who do not obey. Those are the two ways, power and deception. Now, what does the beast mean for us now? What does the beast mean? Is is this our time? Is this our day? Is this in the past? Is this to come? Well, as you can imagine, there's all kinds of interpretations about this. I've said this uh, so many chapters ago, back I think we were in chapter four or five, G.K. Chesterton had a, a quote. He once remarked that St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, but he saw no creatures so wild as one of his own commentators. The ideas about everything that's included in Revelation, what they all mean, are vast 
I don't want to pretend that I, that I just have the uh, interpretation. I have it all figured out. But here's what I, I think is happening on this most simple term, especially for some of us who might be getting an introduction into the book of Revelation. The beasts are clearly, it seems, connected to the vision of beasts in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, there are four beasts that he sees in a vision which represent four idolatrous kingdoms who oppose God's people, Israel, and each of them consecutively. The beast in Revelation, it seems to me at least, to be a summation, a a culmination, a, a continuation of Satan's powerful, deceiving work through earthly kingdoms. That John is recalling and seeing the way he spoke, the way God spoke about kingdoms in the past. He is speaking in the same terms that the beast in his parts and his heads, borrowing from various of the beast in the book of Daniel, all pointing to a kind of organized, institutionalized, state controlled persecution that the seven churches, that the church will face in the first century, that it will have many manifestations throughout the time of the church, and in the very end, and all the times in between. That this is the kind of opposition that Christians in the first century, in our day, and increasingly in the end, can expect. Can expect. Now, we talked about this weeks ago, Some of us may be looking around and thinking, yeah, that's exactly what's happening in America right now. It's happening. It's coming. It's here. Some of us may be waving this off. Oh, this is, that's not us. We don't have to worry about this. But but friends, Christianity is a global event. Christians are a global people. And as we've said before, there are people all over the world who would read this and go, that makes so much sense to me. Because that's my life. But it continues to be a conversation over the years as a pastor to this church. And a conversation, ask, people coming to ask, should I do this thing at work? I think it would cost me my job. Should I say this thing out loud? Because I think it will cost me a contract or a client. It's happening. It is functionally happening in our society, whether it's government-driven and sanctioned or culturally driven and welcomed. So I think the idea of the beast mean for us, if nothing else. So we have to think about it this way. Even if the beasts are to come in the future time, and, and they're, they're not kind of allegorical over how we're going to face persecution in all times, the, the message to us becomes the same. Be ready for this. Think like this as Christians. See your world, dragon, beast on the earth, you. The the dragon's breath that you feel, here's where it comes from. The oppression of the beast, don't be surprised, Christians. This is the atmosphere we live in. So friends, saints, those who are following, trusting, pursuing Christ, those maybe who are considering Christ, and and you hear this and you think, why in the world would I want to follow Jesus? My life is already hard. It sounds like it's just going to get harder. Why why follow Jesus if it's expensive? Why hold to the testimony of Jesus? 
if it's actually going to cost me more. And, and there's beasts running around the world. There's government leaders. There's institutions. There's an organization out there that, res, that stems from the dragon himself that wants to kill me. Right now, I'm fine. You want me to become a Christian? You, you, you want me to become hunted? Have you seen Hunger Games? Like, no one's signing up for this. Why? Why endures a Christian? Why become a Christian? Why believe and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ? Saints, we are called when we are overpowered to endure. Look at chapter 13, verse 9 through 10. Revelation chapter 13. Actually, let's go ahead and back up to verse 8, huh? Let's just throw that in there. Revelation chapter 13. This is in response to the first beast. It's, it's just kind of snuck in there, this one thing that we'll come back to in a moment. This first beast, let's go back to verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. And everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Just tuck that away. If anyone has an ear, let him hear this. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword he must be slain. In response to the first beast who comes to overpower Christians, here's the first call. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This seems to be John himself recalling the sovereignty of God in Jeremiah. That's where that quote seems to come from. Some commentators think it's a combination of quotes from Jeremiah and Isaiah, maybe a couple places in Jeremiah. But it seems to fit most thematically, and the words seem to flow most like Jeremiah chapter 15. In Jeremiah 15, God has pronounced that Babylon is going to come destroy Israel because for generations, Israel has been giving themselves to Baal worship. And now God has pronounced through Jeremiah and other prophets that Babylon is coming and they will seek my vengeance on Israel. And God goes so far to say in Jeremiah 15 that if Moses and Samuel were standing in front of me, Babylon is still going to roll through Israel. And so God says this, when they ask you, Jeremiah, when Israel asks you, Jeremiah chapter 15, when they ask you, where should we go? We're in the promised land. We're in Jerusalem. You're saying we've sinned against you. You're saying Babylon's coming. When they ask you, Jeremiah, when they ask you, well, where should we go? Jeremiah's response in chapter 15, verse 2 of his book, those who are for pestilence to pestilence. Those who are for the sword, to the sword. Those who are for famine, to famine. Those who are for captivity, to captivity. 
Jeremiah, you tell them that's where they go. Point being, meeting the sword for being a Christian is not outside God's sovereignty. Point being, you cannot change God's plans for your life if he would call you and allow you and permit you to suffer for being a Christian on any level. Should God see it fit for you to lose your family or to lose your job or to lose your head? You go to it. John is describing what is a familiar scene in the book of Revelation, a a scene that is familiar to Christians and Israelites alike, a, a scene similar to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian king in Daniel chapter 3. When they were in exile, Nebuchadnezzar raised up an image, asking everyone to come worship the image and worship himself. Daniel chapter 3, I thought this was interesting reading it this week. Daniel chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, probably just skip to, just read verse 3 quickly. After Nebuchadnezzar gave this order that everyone in the land must come worship this image, just as they had done, the beast had done in Revelation 13. Then, after Nebuchadnezzar made that command, Daniel 3, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They had gone out... All of these people, all of the rulers of all the branches of government, all the extensions of authority, the legislative department, the justice department, the executive department, the secretary of treasury, all the local mayors, they're all here making sure that everyone is going to bow down and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It continues in verse 3. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before like representatives. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Every realm of governmental oversight said the same thing. There's no financial gap or safety over here. Well, it's not like a, you don't have any safe towns, no mayors where you can just go and hide. They're all there speaking for Nebuchadnezzar saying, you can worship or you can die. There were three. Three. Daniel chapter 3, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lair, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's blasphemous talk. That's beastly talk. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need 
to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, may it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If we go to the sword, we go to the sword. If we go to captivity, we go to captivity. You want to throw us in the fire, start the match. We won't worship anyone but God. This is the call to the saints in response to the first beast and his power. Endure. You may be slain. You may be thrown in captivity. You may have your house ransacked and your Bible searched for. I, I don't know. Endure. Keep holding to the testimony of Jesus Christ, crucified for your sins, risen from the grave, God of the Bible being the God of the universe. You, you just keep enduring. You take that testimony to, to the gallows. You, you take that testimony into jail and you don't give it up. God may deliver you, but if he does not, take it with you to the grave. Friends, Jesus has called us not only to die once, maybe in the end, this is our life. Jesus called us to die daily. Jesus said, Luke chapter 9, whoever would follow me, let him take up his cross, how often? Daily. And follow me. Even when we're not dying, we're supposed to be dying. Like, we just die every day. That's just what we do. We're dying people, dying on the cross over every day, dying to ourselves, losing our lives. That's what it means. There's not like, well, there's Christians and then there's martyrs. There's Christians and then there's the people who die. No, Jesus said, you want to come with me? You get a cross, we're all going to die. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Die to yourself to forget yourself, to forget your own life. To follow Jesus is a more dangerous life. To follow Jesus is more daring, more, more risky. We can have this confidence. We can have this confidence. We continue to hold to the testimony of Jesus because in the way that we are saved, Jesus walked into death. He walked into being slain, walked into being held captive. He walked into the cross on purpose to be slain as the Lamb of God for our sins to lay in the grave for three days and then to rise again from the dead. So Christians say, you want to you kill us? I've been dying my whole life. I, I'm already died. That's what it means to be a Christian. I, I no longer live. I've died. It's Christ who lives in me. What, what are you going to do? Kill me? I'll raise. I'll rise. If we have forgiveness, like if we have a, a cross, like if we have a suffering, like Jesus, Paul says in Romans 6, how much more can we not expect to have his eternal life? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet may he live. 
The gospel of the resurrection of Jesus is why we can stare at the sword in captivity and we can say to the beast, your power means nothing to me. I will not forsake Jesus. He has the power over death. He has the keys to Hades. He has authority over life, death, and everything in existence. Endure, endure, endure. I will endure, endure, endure in faith because I believe Jesus rose from the dead and I will too. Let me just encourage you Christians, a couple of ways that you can just encourage yourself in faith is to Read Christian biographies. Read biographies of missionaries who have gone into the world, who have been on mission where they are, and have given their lives just for being faithful Christians. They didn't go out seeking a war. They didn't go out seeking to be famous. They didn't go out seeking to die. But in being Christians and taking the gospel to the world, they did so. You will find this immensely encouraging for your own soul. Let me invite you to instruct your children in the same way. A couple that we've used at home, Christian Heroes, Then and Now series. Christian Heroes, Then and Now series. There's another book called Missionary Stories with the Millers. Missionary Story with the Millers. Or maybe you would just take time as a member of our church and go find Don and Jane Courtney and ask them a few questions about what it's like to serve the Kekchi people for 26 years and who they saw minister where in the world as international mission board missionaries. Maybe you would go down to go to the website Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyrs, I just did this. I, I didn't realize I wasn't even getting this magazine. You get a free magazine every month from Voice of the Martyrs. It gives you updates on what's happening in the world. You could use this for your own soul, for your own encouragement. You can use this for your children. Make this a, a time, every time this comes in every single month, you get to pull it out at dinner and read the most current Voice of the Martyrs article and see what's going on in the world, those who are giving their faith to Jesus. I was in a panel on persecution this week, joined by several uh, pastors, an attorney, and even a, a Chinese brother who I'll mention in a moment. Uh, but one of the things one of the pastors said as we talked about persecution in the state of Texas, he just said, listen, God has called us as Christians to persecution, but we are so drawn to comfort. I just thought, this is so damning of us. And it is too true about too many churches in the West. We're called to persecution. We're called to take up our cross daily. We're, we're, we're not going to suffer any less than the master if we're his servants. But oh, how we are drawn to comfort when we're called to be persecuted as Christians. We're going to be overpowered. We're going to be oppressed all over the world. The church, the body of Jesus Christ, endure. Captivity we go, to the sword we go. When we are tempted to be deceived, we need to be wise. The next call from the next beast is to be wise. And Jesus said that Satan, in John chapter 8, Jesus says Satan from the beginning has been a liar and a murderer. The beast seems to take every opportunity he can to disguise himself as an angel of light. We see in Corinthians to, to deceive the world in some way by claiming to have a higher knowledge as Satan did in the garden. Did God really say that? Surely you won't die. One of the last few things Jesus said before going to the cross in Mark 13 is, is this. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Be on guard. I have told you these things 
beforehand. I thought it was helpful what Jim Hamilton said. We, we, we tend to think that these beasts are going to be some so patently obvious, right? Like it's someone's going to be running for president and they're going to look like an animal or something. Like it's just going to be so clear. We'll know. But deception is what? It's deceptive. And the, the tentacles of Satan's deception have reached into the Christian world. Jim Hamilton says it like this. He says, let me be clear. There are people writing books sold by, quote, Christian publishers, unquote, that help Satan's cause against the gospel. There are people preaching sermons on, quote, Christian, unquote, radio and television claiming to speak for God, claiming to represent Christianity, but they are not preaching the gospel. They are not helping people love God and love others. In fact, they are, in many cases, telling people to do exactly the opposite of what the Bible says not to do. And too many Christians, Hamilton says, don't even notice the discrepancy. Friends, don't be these Christians. Practice telling the difference every day. Read God's word every day and you should be able to say, actually, mm, that, um, it's Christian words, but, but that ain't Christian. It, it, I, I get it, like the cover of the book is good and, and you got a cross tattoo on the author and it's all good, that, that, is, that ain't Christian. Because I read my Bible. First John says it like this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, uh, confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's a spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. It's deceiving. Looking Christian, looking like Christ, but having nothing to do with God or saving sinners, having nothing to do with the cross and the resurrection, having nothing to do with Jesus being the author and sustainer of all creation. Friends, this is the Christian disposition not every book that glitters with Christian words is gospel gold. Unless they adhere to the apostles' teaching of Jesus born of a virgin, living a sinless life, going to the cross as the Lamb of God for sins, as God's Son, as the fulfillment of promises to Abraham and the prophets, as the Son of David, as God Himself, as Jesus risen from the dead, as Jesus ascended into heaven where He now waits at the right hand of God until He returns to take us home, it's not Christian. What we have so often in our world today that tempts us is a, a beastly version of Christianity that we've used this phrase, probably heard it here at this church before, moral therapeutic deism. A disinterested God makes you feel better by giving you a morality that you can follow. It takes Jesus and the cross and his sovereignty out of the equation. It's a Christianity where you are the hero where you do good, you pay it forward, you buy Starbucks for the guy at the front, and you're a good person. No. <laughs> no. We need Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. He alone is the Son of God. He alone is Lord and King over all the earth. We need to be wise. We need to know the difference between what is truly of Christ and the world's fake, cheap, 
internet version. Essentially, our instruction toward these two beasts is this. Don't give up. Don't be fooled. The power may come upon you, over you, towards you, about you, cost you, take your life, take your family, take anything. Don't give up. You may be tempted to believe any number of things in the world. Some of them may even sound Christianese. Don't be fooled. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sins and risen from the grave. Put your trust in Christ alone forever. As encouragement to continue in endurance and as a headway for wisdom, we see in the next section the security of the saints. Is it going to be worth it? Is it so wise to continue to hold to the testimony of Jesus, even if it costs me my own life? There are more than three, but here are three things in these passages. Number one, John kind of snuck it in there. Those who are in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Did you catch that earlier? Chapter 13, verse 8. The first beast comes. Everyone in the world worships it. Everyone worships it. That is, everyone, chapter 13, verse 8, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. When you see that those who worship the beast are those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, what do you think? Perhaps you have enough awareness to go, you know what, here we go. Here's another one of those Calvinist passages. Everyone get ready. Or, or maybe you hear it and, and you know, man, this sounds like predestination and it's double predestination. It just sounds like one of those passages that we just, we should nod at, but we should just keep reading. But friends, this is here to encourage Christians. This is not reserved for special conversations by elite theologians late at night with pipes and decaf coffee or something. Here's how it works. Revelation is consistently giving us a picture of heaven's view of what's going on in the world, of God's salvation work in the world. And, and what John's doing is that maybe in your eyes, this little subtle inclusion, maybe in your eyes, you think that you're being forgotten by God. The whole world is deceived. I mean, to follow Jesus is a severe minority in the world. And we're being overpowered at every turn. We're getting outvoted. We're getting killed. We're, we're, our food is kept from us. Our, our kids' education is being forced. We're, we're the mi- minority here. Has God just forgotten us? Or are, we, are we left here? But in God's eyes, from, from heaven's viewpoint, those following Christ have had their names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. From heaven's perspective, your name was written down a long time ago. You don't have to wonder. If you're trusting in Christ, you can be secure that your name is secured with Christ. Security. 
And we ought to think in simplistic terms of how we come to faith in Jesus Christ. I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God's son crucified for my sins, that I was created in the image of God. I sinned against God. Jesus, the perfect image, was slain for me. And so when I heard that, I, I, I believed. That's a simple way to think about the gospel and becoming a Christian, and it's true. But what Revelation is doing is saying, but when you get to peel back, when you get to peek through, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. It's like John who has, in fact, gone through a door and entered into heaven, goes through a door. I've heard it explained this way from one philosopher in our age. On the front, the door says, whosoever. But when you get inside and you look from heaven's viewpoint, the other side of the door says, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. He was secured before you even knew it. You can't imagine the security that we have in Jesus Christ. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Number two, the name of Christ and his Father's name is on the forehead of those who trust in Christ. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. Listen, you may feel small, you may feel outcast, the minority for not taking the mark of the beast. We're not gathering in the worship of the world, the worship that all the rest of the world, everyone who doesn't have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're all joining in the worship of the beast. Know that if you are in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Christ and you're not taking the mark, as it were, that you are instead marked by God, marked by Jesus himself personally and by his Father the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His name is marked on you. I just think it's remarkable. And it's not by accident that we are in this past dragons and beasts and slaying and you can't eat if you don't get the mark and worship the beast. And what's the hope for Christians? In response to the beast and the government and this power overcoming you, what do you have? The Father. The Father. It, it just blows me away. You would think that what we would do is peel back and John would look up in heaven and go, you know, Satan's really powerful. And he's got these beasts who are really powerful. But let's look at God's power. Let's look at God's army. Let's look at all the angels and all their weapons. And, you know, they've killed 100 and something thousand, 180,000 in the Old Testament. Let's, let's look at all God's power. But one of the things it does is just say, look, the Father's name, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his name is on your phone. At the center of our security is a father-son relationship. Not just a, a, a king-citizen relationship, but a father-son, an intimate relationship an ownership the, the the mark itself is in ownership but this is a father a father of our lord jesus christ putting his name on us a father comes for his kids a father comes for his son a father comes for his daughters this is the father's name written on the foreheads of those 
And of course, you can see this is the opposite of the mark of the beast. If you'll bow down and worship, because I will slay you and kill you if you don't. If you bow down and worship me, you can take the mark and you'll be safe. Don't take that mark. Don't take that worship. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship the Father. Isn't that what we mean when we baptize people who come to faith in Jesus Christ? We don't just baptize them in the name of God, an impersonal being, but we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Finally, we have a security that sings. Christians, as we face power and deception, have a security that sings. We see the dragon, we see the two beasts. Both the beasts have their power to slay, to kill Christians, take them to captivity, take them to the sword, keep them from food, demand worshiping the images that they've set up. But then the camera turns to singing. Revelation chapter 4, chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name on his father, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Singing. Of all things, singing. Listen, church, I want you to know that when we get together to sing, it's a revolt. It's treason against the powers and deception in the world. John sees where those who are slain, those who are taken captive, where they go. They end up singing before the throne room of God. I think this is to encourage us that when it is all said and done, we will be singing, singing victory, joy, salvation to God. And that ought to encourage us now to come and sing, to come and join in the victory cry that we will one day sing then. When we gather together in Jesus' name and praise God for our salvation, pleading all of our allegiance to God, we're, we're telling the world, no. We're telling the dragon and the beast, no. We're singing our own death warrants by singing together that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the only Lord of lords who died for our sins, raised from the grave. Jesus is coming back and he will conquer all one day. This is why I think gathering for us is, does, and ought to feel like such rest. Getting together to sing with Christians is a chance to get together in the embassy and say, let's just sing. Let's just cry out our victory. Let's enjoy the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We're, we're at odds with coworkers. We're at odds with work policies. But we're at home with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Singing now is, is doing that thing that we're going to be doing when we're redeemed from the earth finally forever. The only way, the only way to stop our singing as Christians is to kill us. But what Revelation chapter 14 is showing us is that you can't stop our singing. 
You can't. You, you cannot. You, you cannot stop the singing of Christians about Jesus. All you can do is relocate the worship service. You just say, you know, no more worship services on earth. You are going to have to take it to heaven and sing before the throne of God. Fair enough. We sing. Singing is a rejoicing and victory that Jesus has, in fact, conquered sin and death and all the evil in the world. So we sing songs like we sung this morning. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Christ our hope in life and death. That's our song. Take us to the sword. Take us to captivity. We don't care. This week I was able to meet a new hero of mine. His name is Bob Fu. I got connected to Bob through our state ethics committee who prepared a, a journal on persecution. There's a few copies in the hallway if you'd like to have one today. You can take one. Bob also came to our state annual meeting where he joined a, a public panel on persecution. In the journal, Bob Fu shared his testimony and it talks about singing. One day, 1996, after Chinese officials had imprisoned me, Bob Fu having grown up in China and Chinese himself, after Chinese officials had imprisoned me for taking part of the Tiananmen Square event, my back as well as my heart ached. Despite the pain I felt from hostile treatment of the Chinese guards inflicted on me and others, and from missing Heidi, my wife, I felt so thankful to God for his power and presence that I wanted to sing. Without considering what my actions might cost, I cleared my throat and I began singing a song from the underground house church days. Give thanks with a grateful heart, I mumbled, causing those around me to at least momentarily break form and look at me. Typically, nothing unusual happened during our days. The most excitement we ever saw was when someone readjusted or scratched their nose or sneezed and got severely beaten if the guard happened to be walking by. That day, however, the guard didn't seem to be near, and so I added the next few lines. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. When I finished my song, I looked at the gigantic iron gate and waited for a guard to come swooping in with his electric baton. I'm not sure if he was on break or if he was just not at his station, but since I hadn't been punished yet, I started my song again. Give thanks. To my surprise, another voice joined in with me. I couldn't see what it was, but at first the sound emanated from a few rows behind me. Then another voice started singing from my left, and we sang, give thanks, three times in a row. As we finished singing, I heard a, security, the, a head security guard yelled at me, what did we tell you about sharing the gospel? You said not to speak a word of it, I replied. And yet, the guard said, you, you led the whole prison in your superstitious songs. And here's Bob's wit. Well, I didn't speak a word of it. I sang it. Later, when guards forced us to sit like statues in our uncomfortable positions, I knew I'd get beaten if I sang out again. Instead of singing, I simply hummed the tune to give thanks. Once again, the other men joined in with me with my humming, and pretty soon the prison resounded like a gigantic beehive of praise. 
When the world comes to oppress with power, when the world comes to deceive with signs, when the beast, when the dragon seek to imitate the power, the glory, the beauty of Jesus Christ, we say no. We endure. We revolt. We sing the gospel of Christ. We give thanks. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word today, for it's what we trust is your timeliness and your providence to give us this word for this day. All the things we are enduring, Father, there are so many things. Meanwhile, we live in a world where power and deception come against the body of Christ everywhere. In different forms, different levels of heat, different sharpness of swords, greater and lesser costs. Nonetheless, a world where Satan has been thrown down and where his ministers seek to overpower and deceive us at every turn. Would you help us to be an enduring, wise people? Help us to be a people who won't stop singing. Remembering, because of Jesus' resurrection, because of his payment for our sin, though we would be slain, we will sing in your presence forever. Help that be our endurance. Help us keep this sharp wisdom. For your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name. Before we sing, I just want to take a moment and ask you to just thoughtfully pray on your own. Might you believe in Jesus Christ for the first time today. Maybe the Holy Spirit has woken your heart to faith. And you never have, but today you would say, I, I, I want to trust Christ crucified for my sins. Maybe you're just tired and weary of being a Christian in this world. Will you just take a moment and pray, God, help me endure. Help me be wise.